This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Hi, welcome to the EM Weekly Show, powered by Titan HST, the first choice in mass notification. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. There's, you know, this great education and advice program that the um, rural and country fire services in Australia run, telling people how to be prepared and what they need to do. Um, but I think there's sometimes a bit of a void between what people are actually capable of doing financially and accessing. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe. This week, we are talking to Bridie McLean from the Bush Fire Readiness in Dales Creek, Victoria, Australia. This is kind of a timely episode because of the crazy fire season that uh, both the United States had and also of course, our brothers and sisters uh, down under uh, were fighting this year in, uh, in Australia. And, you know, from, from what I got from talking to uh, Bridie is that uh, people um, are people and they don't really take the, uh, the message of preparedness necessarily uh, to heart. And I know that that's one of the things that we have here uh, that we're dealing with in the United States. And uh, I'm sure it's happening in Canada and, and where else too. But uh, it's finding that these people... As much as we tell them to be prepared, uh, they don't heed the warning. And interestingly enough, there was a, a tornado warning that came out in Orange County, California, uh, just last week. And no one really, I don't know if they didn't take it serious, I mean, or they just didn't know what to do or or, or what's going on with that. But it, it's, they're more, it's more of a joke now on social media in, in Orange County that uh that this thing came and you know things like i survived the tornado warning of you know 2019 or whatever and uh, it's just uh it's you know i, I don't know I, I don't know how we can tell people to take these things seriously not and uh that's the question of the century definitely the that decade right because uh you know we're in 2020 now and uh wow can you believe it's 2020 already anyway i i you know let's get into this interview here with uh with Bridie and and uh, see what uh, she has to say about preparing people in the world, but specifically in Australia. Now on to the interview. Well, welcome to Ian Weekly from Australia. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, I'm tooling around the uh, Facebook and LinkedIn and whatnot, and I come across uh, your organization with the with brush fire readiness, basically. And so in Australia, in our winter, it's their summer, and uh, that's when they have their um, fire season. And we actually send a lot of people from California, specifically down to Australia, and, and Australia sends a lot of people from down there up here during our fire season. So we flip flop a lot. So I thought it was kind of cool to see that uh, you guys were doing fire preparedness as well. And I kind of wanted to just talk about that and see what you guys are doing differently than we're doing up here. So 
do a quick little introduction of yourself and your company and what you guys are doing. Yeah, sure. Well, Bushfire Readiness Kits is really all about trying to look after those people that don't have that huge emergency preparedness background and understanding. So having a, a look into what their knowledge level would be like and what their access to equipment would be like in Australia. You know, we've got a huge uh, country, you know, nearly the same landmass as the US, just a little bit smaller. Um, but we've got probably only 10% of the popula- population. So a lot of people that live in those areas that are prone to bushfires um, often come up against just access to shops nearby and equipment and things to help them be prepared and ready. So bushfire readiness kits was born out of you know, a need for people in Australia to have access to some good equipment to help them and their families stay ready and prepared when you know that that event does occur. So we have a range of kits, you know, from from a basic standard one with you know your basic uh, you know readiness equipment, right up to premium kits for, with all the bells and whistles to to help you. Stay safe and increase your chance of survival and uh, during an event. In the United States, um, preparedness is one of those things that we as emergency managers and, and fire departments and, and police and whatnot, we, we always push. And it seems like people don't, don't really want to take the time or, or the, the effort to be prepared. Do you guys have that same issue in Australia or is it just a unique link to the United States? No, it's certainly not unique to the United States and there's been, you know, a lot of research and study done by some some great people here in Australia, um, especially after we had really our worst bushfire event in history about 10 years ago where we sadly lost nearly 180 lives during, you know, a a very short period of time. Um, And through some great research that was done before that and since, there, there has been seen that there, you know, does seem to be a tendency of people having you know, that, that human attitude of maybe it won't happen to me or I'll get away in time, you know, I'll leave before it occurs, that kind of thing. Um, but I also think there's definitely something we need to look at as well in that is that there's lots of people that do want to be prepared, that do see there's risks, but they have additional barriers that are placed in front of them for, for putting together some, you know, basic preparedness um, actions you know, around their home as well as equipment within their home. So what kind of equipment do you recommend for, for people to have in their home? And I guess let me, let me double on that question. As those of us that are in the emergency management uh, field, we tend not to want to support one thing over the other, right? You know, like if we say, hey, we don't want to tell you to have blue shovels because you might might want to have red shovels. Uh, but but people ask us all the time, what should we have in our home? What do you recommend to have for people to have in their yeah. in their homes? Well, and that's yeah, this is the tricky thing for people in the emergency emergency management sector in the US, like Australia. A lot of it is um, government, you know, funded or run. So endorsement of certain products or you know really specific guidance often can't be done or you know there's there's different reasons why you know you don't want to tell someone that you should definitely have this product because their particular situation might be different to 
you know, others in the community. So they might be in a, a grass fire situation as, a, as opposed to a wildfire, which might behave differently. So mm. there definitely is some different needs. But look, the basic things that we advise people to have is definitely your first aid kit and a good first aid kit because you don't want to buy one. You know, I've seen first aid kits out there that brag about having 100 items inside and you've all seen them where 90 of the items are Band-Aids <laughs> and some, you know, some bandages and then the other items in there have really short used-by dates. Right. So then a couple of years later, you've popped it in the cupboard, you need it in an emergency and half the stuff in there is either isn't, you know, usable or what you need. Um, also um, a radio. Even, you know, in this day and age where we've got, Everyone's got mobile phones. Often, you know, during such events as big wildfires and big bushfires, the, you know, the telecom tower, different towers that communicate might be damaged, the power lines might be damaged, and therefore people might not be getting signals on their mobile phones. So radio and with spare batteries. Um, the other thing that really strongly advise, two things, which is being able to see and breathe. Being able to see and breathe is really important, but it doesn't mean you have to go and spend a fortune on the best kit out there that, you know, someone that's going to fight a fire needs. Um, so some goggles or safety goggles that have some clearing vents in them that help clear any smoke. So you're not going to get dust and debris and ash in your eyes and you're still going to be able to keep them open to get yourself and your family to safety. And then a good face mask that's of what we classify here as being P2, which is it just has a, a breather valve or vent on the front. And again, these two items don't have to be really expensive, but ensuring you have the ability to, you know, get some oxygen into your lungs and see where you're going, um, you know, is really important. So they're probably a few key items that I'd recommend, you know, everyone have. Um, on top of things like a high-vis vest or high-visibility vest so then you can be easily seen. And when you've got kids, you know, if you've got a few kids running around and you're trying to evacuate, you want to be able to see them easily, especially if it's night time and you've lost power, um, you know, or it's, you know, heavy smoke in the area. Being able to keep an eye on your family members or the people in your household with you evacuating is really important too. We just had a brush fire um, in the uh, LA metropolitan area, and it kicked off at nine o'clock at night. You know, it's one of those things like where you really kind of have to pay attention. We actually, them when I say we, collective we, the yeah. <laughs> Los Angeles County ended up act, uh, you know evacuating you know a few thousand people out of there. It's a Porter Ranch area, um, and and one of the things I, which is interesting is that there were large animals that were up in those areas too. And we never think about the, the idea that there's horses in, in, in these, um, you know, typical metropolitan areas, but this is, you know, obviously we're expanding here in Los Angeles County. And, and so you see people trying to rescue horses, you see, you know, fires coming in, people don't want to leave their homes because they have their pets and whatnot. When you get that word for evacuation, how do we encourage people to really, heed what we're saying and evacuate i know they have their their loved ones or not loved ones but they're maybe they're large animals maybe their homes they're there they're, they're worried about but because doesn't that interfere with the fire department yeah totally and this is one of the areas that i think it sounds like you guys and australia and, and a lot of regions are still working on and there's 
you know, this great education and advice program that the um, rural and country fire services in Australia run, telling people how to be prepared and what they need to do. Um, but I think there's sometimes a bit of a void between what people are actually capable of doing financially and accessing when before that fire event occurs. So then when they come to their door, you know, the fire departments get quite frustrated that they think we've told people about this stuff. They need to do it. It's for their lives. And, it, you know, it can affect their safety and lives when people aren't leaving their homes. So I think the more that, that we work together with industry, that the fire departments and industry work together, um, and as well as with um, bushfire readiness kits, also work with a charitable organisation in Australia called the Bushfire Foundation. And what they do is actually help people who either for reasons because they're elderly, financially incapable, they might have disabilities, go and prepare their homes for a bushfire season. So help them clear out their gutters, take over some power tools and cut their grass and, you know, cut back trees, as well as help them with their animals and help their animals be prepared to leave when there's emergencies. So they have different um, areas that will take horses and connect people with properties to look after other people's animals during such events. So having those things ready to go and identifying those in our community that might need a bit of extra hand prior to and during an event, I think will only increase the safety of all. You know, what's kind of cool is the message that you're saying is is very similar to what we're telling those people here in the States. And so it's great that, that we're all on the same page. <laughs> Yeah, that that is good to know. <laughs> if, we're, if we're coming from different different ends of the spectrum at this point, I'll be I'll be concerned. But I do see a lot of similarities, and I have worked with a lot of the great people from the US and um, from Canada as well that come out here each year and help us fight bushfires and save lives. And I have swapped a lot of you know similar stories with them. Um, in in the way that we approach it and the challenges we all face as well as well as with you know, increasing events and, you know, worsening climate that, that's contributing to both of our seasons extending at each end, which um, right. is actually, you know, causing issues for both of our countries where we used to share those resources during the bushfire seasons back and forth. Um, but because of each of our bushfire seasons extending right. at each end, where, you know, it's becoming more and more challenging to, to look after each other in that respect. So that's another challenge that we're, we're sharing too. Yeah. Last year, I think it was, we had firefighters from New Zealand, Australia, um, some of the, um, some of the Pacific islands, uh, were coming, came out to, to fight fires here, um, in uh, Northern California, Arizona, Washington state, uh, um, Montana, you know, all those places that were on fire. And then we, we sent, we sent people up to Canada to help fight fires up there you know, and yeah. and, then, and then the other day I was reading this article about the fire threat in uh, Italy and in Europe, and other parts of Europe that they're having larger uh, brush fires now. So, you know, we always think it's unique to the United States and, and Australia, uh, but yeah, Europe is getting hit too. Yeah, and even parts of Australia and the US where there didn't ever used to even really be bushfires or people needing to be aware of them before, they're becoming 
not only more prevalent, but absolutely, you know, really terrifying events. So we've got this situation too where there's places that the, the, the residents there didn't ever really need to be aware or prepared for these events because, you know, it didn't, didn't actually occur before. But we've had bushfires, you know, in um, the first week of September here in Australia in Queensland that are usually like a rainforest, so very tropical and lush and wet area where bushfires weren't that common before. And, you know, a week after winter ended, they were having, you know, losing homes and um, had weeks of bushfires burning and, and that. But it is fantastic that we're sharing, you know, resources and people. And it is amazing, this industry, how passionate and caring people are that, you know, they'll jump on a plane and go to another country to help out. You know, it's, it's really great to see. It is indeed. I just read an article um, this morning and they're talking about the, uh, the health effects of fires and that, uh, you know, they said, oh, we should call this a, and I, and I understand where they're coming from, they call this a, a public health emergency as well, uh, not just a, a fire emergency. And I remember when I was working as a paramedic that every time that there was a brush fire in the area that we knew we were going to have an increase in respiratory um, issues from people that are 40, 50 miles away from the, the fire, not even, you know, the smoke is coming in, but you can't really see it. Um, are you guys having the same issues uh, in your, say, your city areas near brush fires, even though they're not directly affected by the fire, that they're having respiratory issues? Yeah, yeah, there certainly is that occurring. Um, and also more concern with more and more toxins and different things that are, that are burning in the fires, contributing to the toxicity within the smoke. So the smoke, you know, will travel a long distance and you know, again, there's this preparedness thing that those of us in the emergency management um, community or have worked within, you know, bushfires and or, or um, wildfires, we know how fast smoke can travel and, you know, having basic things like face masks and, and that to protect us. Um, but those in the wider community just don't know and don't have that educational background. Um, and, They'll think to themselves, oh, I'll get out way before it comes near me. And they probably will, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be effects from the fire, like you said, with smoke travelling really long distances. And it might, you know, affect their ability to breathe and if they've got, um, you know, health conditions with asthma and, and different things that, you know, that worsen it, it can be, you know, really, really troubling. How do you reach out to the communities that, you know, or the people in the communities that aren't near what they would consider fire danger, but yeah, are still going to be impacted with those health issues. I mean, do you, is it a harder sell for them to be prepared for fires than it is for, say, somebody who does live in the rural areas? Yeah, look, it can really depend. Um, we have some fantastic, each of our, I think similar to the US, each of our states and territories here in Australia have their own rural or country fire service and then Obviously, each of those organisations have you know, up to hundreds of different units that are based in different areas. Um, so, you know, within um, two miles of where I live in a quite a rural area, there's two different, you know, country fire services. And they do a great job of um, education and promotion of the local communities. They'll have um, days at the fire station for people to come down and ask questions to they'll drop pamphlets off and, you know, information about what they could be doing. Um, but 
yeah, it's becoming that because we've got the urban sprawl with, you know, cities kind of moving further and further out and closer and closer to bushland and people wanting to live, you know, in nature and closer to bushland, that those kind of border areas that aren't quite rural and in the bush but, you know, are in the, you know, closer to forests, um, don't really realise the dangers they're in often or aren't as aware of them as sometimes people out in the real rural areas are who will often be very prepared with their own, you know, hoses and pumps and backup pumps and, and things like that. So how you capture those border city areas is, is still a challenge here as well. But uh, the guys that work for the Rural Fire Services in New South Wales and CFA in Victoria also do a great job. So if you're living like in a city like Bunbury, uh, do you think you're more prepared than somebody, say, living in Perth? Oh, I, I wouldn't actually make that assumption because I really do think that often people that live in more remote or rural areas can sometimes, they already know to be more prepared for lots of other events. They know that they don't have ready access to, you know, everything on their doorstep. So sometimes they're more prepared than than people living in bigger cities that kind of feel like they're protected from those events, that it that it won't happen because they're they're too close to an inner city. So but it can vary as well. You know, the understanding between people and the understanding between different communities can really be driven at a grassroots, you know, if you get a great group of people that live in a certain community and and start programs on their own to educate other people and the kids at the schools. Um, and also some of the kids at the schools here in Australia have been doing amazing jobs in response to bushfire events that they've, you know, been involved in as part of them healing from, you know, trauma that they've experienced is actually creating education programs for other kids and going to different schools and teaching them as well, which then kind of filters upwards towards the parents instead of downwards towards the kids, which is a really interesting take on it as well, I think. What kind of youth programs do you have? Um, I don't have uh, a close association with any of the youth programs. Um, I could probably get you some details after this, but um, there's, yeah, a number of them that are out there and I, I don't have them at my fingertips at the moment, unfortunately. Oh, no worries. I was just thinking, you know, because uh, it just that's a really kind of a cool way of, of approaching it with getting in front of the in front of the kids, you know. Yeah, kind of puts yeah. the pressure on the parents, and that's it. I haven't had it. I haven't been directly linked to it, but I've been reading quite a bit and following a few, few of them and what they're up to. And it it really um, clicked with me as well with what a uh, got, what a great initiative for to help kids heal after experiencing something, to be able to teach other children, mm-hmm. um, and to be able to teach it through their eyes of how they experienced it, um, what they see needs to you know to be done. You know, we often tell kids. Or think how kids would feel or experience something, but when it comes from their mouths, and then they are teaching other children, it's, they're much more receptive to it as well. Um, and you know, children, you know, amazing ability to encourage their parents to do things too, which you know everyone knows from taking their kids to the shops, <laughs> and they place those they place those chocolate bars right at uh, the kids' eye level. Right. They are, yeah, very good at encouraging their parents to uh, to to get on board and do something they want. So. I think it's a uh, yeah a, ver- a really great inclusive way to to you know attack a, an old problem from a from a new direction. 
Yeah, I always tell my wife my daughter has the the best power of persuasion I've ever seen in a, any person in my entire life. So uh, that's it. Maybe we should get a bunch of yeah, twelve and thirteen year olds out running running all the courses. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Maybe that's a solution. <laughs> that's, that is not a bad. That's not a bad idea. We I mean, we stumbled onto something here. Uh, so. How do you get out in the field? Like, what what do you do specifically to get out into the community to to help them be prepared? Um, well, I talk a lot with um, the, the community that I live in. Um, you know, keeping on top of different events and and talking with people, um, and as well as being involved in you know platforms like LinkedIn, and that are fantastic for for learning information from different people and what's going on, professionals in the field. Also communicating, you know, what what you're up to and getting input on that. Um, and it can be tricky though because, you know, we're really huge. We're both really huge countries and, you know, with really diverse landscapes and terrain and things. So physically getting out and about can be hard. But, you know, internet is, is an amazing platform mm. but it doesn't always reach people. That's, you know, the other challenge in Australia is, you know, internet still isn't, you know, 100% across all the country and often to the people that are the most remote and might need it the most. So um, trying to get face-to-face with as many people as you can um, as well as, you know, trying to get online and chat with people and that too. Right. Do you guys have like a CERT program, the Community Emergency Response Team type thing? Yes, we do actually. And um, we have one in the area I live in. So the CERT team... um, uh, based in a little township called Blackwood, which is about two miles from where I live in a little town called Dales Creek. And we don't, you know, ambulances would take quite a while or things like that to get to our area. So the CERT team are there to, you know, to help out the community and respond to different emergency events and provide, you know, backup to the local country fire authorities that are based there too. So they work together. In, in different events as well and are an amazing asset to the community. What are your three biggest takeaways when you go out and speak to the community about does, about fire preparedness? Um, well, the th- I guess the three biggest things I think about is just reminding them how lucky they are to have these fantastic professionals who will risk their lives to come to them in their time of need. Um, but to help and protect them, they need to also do some work to help themselves. Um, you know, it, it puts their lives in danger as well as their own when they don't do some of the basic preparedness. Um, I'd also really, you know, remind emergency professionals um, to just every now and again, and I giving them some advice, which I know probably, you know, might be a bit funny, but I know this fault because I do it sometimes myself and that is forgetting how much knowledge or training or skills we have and that the people we're talking to or guiding don't have that, you know, even just that arsenal of acronyms, you know, in the emergency management field. We love some good acronyms and, you know, using different technical words and that might actually make other people fearful or embarrassed to even ask questions. And if they're struggling, you know, financially or education-wise, or they might even have literacy issues and not even be able to read 
the information you're giving them is to remember just to take a step back and remember what it was like before you had any knowledge in this area and how intimidating it might be to approach and ask someone of their standing, you know, some questions if you're feeling a bit, you know, lacking confidence. Um, and, you know, just to, you know, help help out your neighbours and keep an eye on each other as well, to, to prepare your own home and then keep an eye on the people around you um, to help them out too. Help a neighbour meet a friend, right? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What's your biggest challenge? The biggest challenge previously that I've really faced when, you know, working in the emergency management field is sleep deprivation and shift work, <laughs> that throwing your body around and your health around um, and trying to recover from, you know, really long shifts and that. And um, at the time, you don't notice it. You, you know, you're just going. Um, but it really does have a long-term impact um, on, your, on your health physically and mentally. And to make sure that, you know, emergency professionals all as well as myself look after ourselves both physically and mentally um, during events and and after them as well oh it's so true all right one last question if you could talk to all the emergency managers in the world at one time what would you tell them make sure you have a really good cup of coffee before you start your shift Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I, I, yes. You awesome. never know if it's going to go for six hours or 20 hours. <laughs> I, I got a coffee cup um, from a friend of mine, and it says, behind every good emergency manager is a great coffee machine. <laughs> yes, I like it. I'll have to get a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bertie, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, Todd. It was a pleasure being here. And uh, good luck to everyone uh, in the US. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. And also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you're looking for more information and more emergency management type podcast, check out sitchradio.com because there's a full laundry list over there. See you next week.